we've confessed our faith, we've given God our offering, and now let us be blessed by the preaching of His Word. Would you stand to honor the reading of the Word of God? Remain standing for a moment of prayer. Nehemiah chapter 6. We pick up where we left off last Sunday evening. This is the Word of God. Now, when it was reported to Sanballat and Tobiah, to Gisham the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and that no breach remained in it, although at the time I had not set up the doors and the gates, then Sanballat and Gisham sent a message to me, saying, Come, let us meet together in Cherifim, in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? They sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. It was written, It is reported among the nations, and Gashma says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you're rebuilding the wall and you are to be their king, according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, A king is in Judah, and now it will be reported to the king, according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Then I sent a message to him, saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, son of Methabel, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you, and they're coming to kill you at night. But I said, Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin, so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Nodea, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. So the wall was completed on the fifty-fifth, on the twenty-fifth of the month Elul, in fifty-two days. When all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehonahan had married the daughter of Meshalem, the son of Berkiah. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobias sent letters to frighten me. May God add a blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Fathers, we come now to this time in which we hear from Nehemiah in which we understand this historical event, and we look at the way that this leader addressed conflict, I pray that you would strengthen our backs and give us courage to face conflict that we face and will face in the same manner. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you handle conflict? How do you personally handle conflict? I read about these two men in the church that had a great disagreement 
And one at a time, they decided to go see their pastor. The first man comes to the pastor's house and he knocks on his door. He asks if he can speak with him and the pastor invites him in. He sits down at the table while the pastor's wife makes them some tea. They're drinking their cup of tea. And the man tells him all of the facts. And at the end of it, he asks the pastor, what do you think? And the pastor said, you're, you're absolutely correct. And the man gets up and leaves. A little bit of time passes by and the next man comes and knocks on the door and he wants to come in and tell the pastor his side of the story. He invites him in. He comes in and he sits down at his table. His wife makes them some tea. They have a cup of tea and he tells him the whole story. And when he's done, he asks the pastor, what do you think? And the pastor says, you are absolutely correct. The man gets up and leaves and the pastor's wife comes in and says, I cannot believe you. I cannot believe that both of those men came in here and told two entirely different stories and you told both of them they were absolutely correct. Why, one of them is lying. And you know what he said? You're absolutely correct. How do you handle conflict? Some people try to take the path of least resistance. Some people believe that the best way to deal with conflict is to, make, to take no stance at all. Let me tell you something. In all of life, you're going to be asked to choose sides. Joshua knew that. He said, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know what Joshua said? Joshua said, everyone's going to choose someone. Everyone's going to have to choose a side. It's unfortunate when we are pressed into, into, into conflict in which we have to choose sides. But you know what? It is very rare that anyone can remain neutral because sometimes not making a choice is your choice. How do you handle conflict? What is your normal response to conflict when you engage it in your own home or in your own workplace? How well do you handle a personal attack? Are you the kind of person that remains cool under pressure or do you melt under pressure? Nehemiah chapter 6 is a textbook example of how to deal with pressure, especially pressure from a vicious enemy. When you boil it all down, there are really only two ways to deal with conflict. You can react or you can respond. Now listen, not every time is it right to respond, nor every time is it right to react. Some people react to pressure. They do little thinking and a lot of action and they just spring into action as soon as pressure comes upon them. Do you know anyone like that? There is a time to act like that though, isn't there? I mean, if you happen to be in some bad portion of a large city and you hear a gunfire, that's not the time to stand around and look and ponder about what your choices might be. Hmm, there's gunfire. I wonder if it's friendly or foe. I wonder if they're shooting at me or around me. That's not the time to respond. That's not the time to begin to ponder what are your possibilities. That's the time to get down on your face behind cover until you figure out what's going on. There's a right time to react. But there's also a time in which you should respond. When someone cries for help, you don't ponder. I wonder if that's my child or the neighbor's child. I wonder if that's a cry for wolf or if that's a real cry. When somebody cries for help, we react. You want to see a parent move? Let them be in a, in a play pen area where there's lots of children and let them hear their child cry out, Mom, or help, or I'm hurt. And you'll see parents move quickly. They react. They do not respond. They don't say to the other parent, What do you think? You think that's real or not real? Think I ought to go or not go? They get up and react. But it's not always right to just react. Sometimes we should respond. When do we respond? Well, I think that from Nehemiah chapter 6, we see that we respond instead of react 
when we have an adversary who comes against us verbally the way that Nehemiah's adversary comes against him. A lot of people react when their adversary goes against them and they return kind with kind. They snap back immediately. They go into seek and destroy mode. Uh, someone asks you for your opinion on something, if you don't give them the opinion that they want, boy, I'll tell you what, you might as well, you'd been better off to just slap them because they're just reacting in anger. Or you get into a disagreement with somebody and, and see that their side is losing the disagreement and typically what they lack in inspiration they will make up in perspiration by yelling. Ah! Right? You know people like that. Maybe you're somebody like that. Well, let's learn a lesson today from Nehemiah. Nehemiah handled the relentless attacks of Sanballat and Tobiah and their friends in a textbook manner. In Nehemiah 6, we're given a textbook example of how a Christian should respond to personal attacks on his or her character and kingdom service. I want to tell you something. It's hard to respond properly when you're being personally attacked. If you've ever been personally attacked, maybe by a brother-in-law, maybe by an in-law, maybe by a neighbor, maybe by a co-worker, you know how hard it is to not just react. That's what we want to do. We want to react. But what we learn from Nehemiah is that there's a time to react and a time to respond. Christians need to understand that if we are going to do anything of significance for the kingdom of God, we will face opposition. Do you understand that? Do you understand that if you're going to do anything of significance, you're going to face opposition? If you take a stance for anything, then you're taking a stance against someone or something. You get that, right? But yet, so many times, Christians are, are bewildered why I've taken a stance for God and why am I receiving this opposition? We have this mindset that says if we're good, godly, moral, Christ-loving, Bible-believing Christians, the world is going to love us. And yet, Jesus said the world hated Him. How much more do you think they're going to hate you? Jesus called the world darkness and said the world loves darkness and hates the light. He said that you and I are lights set upon a hill. If we're lights set upon a hill in a dark world and we try to get more oil to our light to burn it even brighter, how much more intently do we expect the world to hate us? Listen, church, we need to understand the scheme of the enemy. And I'll tell you that the enemy is not, the enemy doesn't always show up looking like the enemy. You know one of the greatest battles we're having in the war of Iraq right now? that we're not fighting an enemy in a fatigue that says, that says terrorist and their name tag. Terrorist Mohammed. We can't recognize the enemy. One of the things that our soldiers say is it's much like Vietnam. They walk down the streets in the daytime and people come out in civilian clothes and pat them on the back and give them a glass of water and they take the candy from the soldiers and tell them how much they love them and at nighttime those same people pick up RPGs and make IEDs and try to kill the soldiers no different in the church. Some people walk up to you and take your hand and pat you on the back in the church and leave the church and do everything they can to destroy your name and tear you down. Now, what do we do? Well, we've got a couple of options. Option number one, we can just throw our hands up in the air and say, the church is full of hypocrites and I'm never going back. It might be, but it's God's church. And Christ has said that no matter what hell may do, it will not prevail against His church. Where are you going to go? Whenever Jesus defended His deity to Peter... He turned around and the disciples left and, they, and He said to the disciples, Are you going to leave? And what did Peter say? Where are we going to go? You've got the words of life. 
Where are we going to go? Listen, if you're going to leave the church and remain in a relationship of God, then where are you going to go? Because the church is the bride of Christ. So the answer is not to abandon and run away. The answer is to respond biblically. The answer is to respond in faith. The answer is to address the issues at hand and deal with them being led by the Spirit. The aim of this chapter then is to give us a living example of how to recognize and handle opposition. As we walk through this chapter verse by verse, I want to give you four, I want to point out four attacks and four responses. And they're common attacks, but they're uncommon responses. We see the first attack coming in the first four verses. Nehemiah's enemies attacked him by making an entrapping offer. But Nehemiah responds by remaining focused on task. They make an entrapping offer. Look at verses 1 through 4. Now, you remember who Sambalot and, and Tobiah were, right? They're the guys that are steering everybody up. Um, they're, they're, they're the guys that are trying to get the folks to, to fight against what Nehemiah is doing. Remember that Nehemiah is not a priest. He's a governor. He was the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes. He's been sent back to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Sambalot and Tobiah don't like it. They see him as competition to what they're trying to do. All right. So notice what happens in the first four voice verses. When it was reported to Sanballat and Tobiah, to Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of the enemies, that I would rebuild the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, so the work was not finished yet. Okay? But they hear that the wall was finished. Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, I mean, this sounds reasonable enough, doesn't it? Listen, come. Let's meet together. Let's go to Ano. Let's, let's sit down and talk about our differences. I mean, that's a reasonable enough request, right? Has anyone ever invited you to breakfast? Let's talk about our differences. And when you get there, they've got a stack of ammunition this high. You ever had that happen? You ever had that happen where someone says, let's talk. But when you start to talk, they pull out their notes. They've been preparing for days or weeks or months to get you there. And you Listen, you know something's up that when you walk in the house, they lock the door and draw the blinds. Move the couch in front of the door. And they've got all the knives put up. Something's up, right? The sensors on your brain ought to say, I don't think this is going to go very well. That's a reasonable enough request. Let's meet. Notice what Nehemiah says. He said, why should the work of... of uh, why?" Why should the work stop while I have it yet to be done? Have yet uh, and I leave it and come down to you in verse three. So they sent a message to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Nehemiah responded by staying focused on the task. Let me tell you something: the enemy is always looking for ways to entrap and defeat believers. You must understand that the devil does not care how he defeats you as long as he can defeat you. Do you understand that? The devil does not care whether it's pleasure or pain. He just wants to bring defeat. The devil will use, he will use civil war and maining and starvation in Africa and he'll, use, and he'll use the lottery and drugs and illicit sex in America. The devil does not care how he destroys. It makes no difference to him whether he destroys you by, by stuffing money in your pocket so you become a greedy, worldly, materialistic pagan or whether he can send an army to destroy you and kill you. He does not care how he destroys. The only thing he wants to do is destroy. Pain or pleasure makes no difference to him. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. <clears throat> He says in verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to him saying, Come, let's meet together. I mean, this seems like a reasonable request. Here, I've, I've interpreted it like this. Come on down to Ono, 
Nehemiah, and meet with us. Well, don't you want to have a good relationship with your neighbors? We just want to talk about what you're doing. Now, that seems like a reasonable enough request. And I can hear some of the folks in the church that don't have all of the facts hearing that request from, from Sandalot and Tobiah and why, Pastor, that isn't very loving of you to not go when they don't understand everything that's taking place. They don't know all the behind-the-doors meetings. They haven't heard all the conversations. They haven't seen the letters that have been written. They don't know what Sanballat and Tobiah has done. But see, Sanballat and Tobiah are calculated. What they do is they leak what they want leaked to the press. That didn't happen in our society at all, does it? There isn't ever one side that leaks to the press their side to try to slant things in, a, in, a, in an opposite direction, right? Be careful about making up your mind on only what you've seen. Leadership, whether it's in the church or the home or the work, whether it's on the football field or in the basketball gym, requires a certain amount of intuition. A leadership cannot afford to be naive. Nehemiah couldn't be naive. Nehemiah couldn't say, Oh, look! They want to have a meeting and work all of this out. There was nothing in their previous behavior that would indicate to him that this is a genuine offer of working anything out. Fathers, be careful that you don't buy into the enemy's lie that although the boy your daughter is dating is not a Christian, he's a nice young man. Well, I know that he's not a Christian, Pastor, but he's a nice young man. You know what? I have never met a young lady yet who's a Christian or a young man yet who's a Christian that's married the opposite sex and said this, I know that they're not a Christian. I realize that in a few years they're going to be an abusive drunk that's going to put us, plunge us into debt. Oh, but I love them. Nobody says that. Nobody says, I realize that this marriage is going to go straight down the drain in just a few years, but those first couple of years are sure going to be happy. The devil doesn't care how he defeats. He loves to defeat with infatuation. Don't marry out of infatuation. Marry out of compatibility. Don't marry somebody because you're attracted to them because of their, godly, because of their worldly appearance. Listen, beauty is fading. Just look at me. I used to be gorgeous. Beauty's fading. We gain weight. We lose our hair. It turns different colors. We get wrinkly and warts and moles and cancer and diabetes. Listen, don't marry because somebody is beautiful on the outside. Marry because somebody's beautiful on the inside. The devil doesn't care how he defeats you, just that he can defeat you. Fathers, don't buy into the lie. Elders, don't buy into the lie that doctrine divides. Do you know how many times I hear that? Let's not have doctrine. You know, the Bible never says that we're going to be known by our doctrine. We're going to be known by our love. Love defined by what? People will say God is love. You know what? God is love. But unless you understand the God of love, you will deform it. And it's not the God that you make Him out to be. Doctrine doesn't divide. Doctrine unites. Doctrine unites. Whenever we say we're not going to have any doctrinal distinctives, that's a doctrinal distinctive right there. And let me tell you something. It's just a matter of time before that's not going to work. We need to have clearly defined beliefs based upon the Scripture so that we can say this. This is who we are. This is what we are. If you want to be a part of us, then you must agree with who and what we are. And if someone says no, then we would rather have them say no on the front end than from internally, like Sanballat and Tobiah. And for those that say yes, they come and say, that's exactly what we're looking for. Be careful that we don't buy into the lie. 
I want you to notice the enemy's persistence in verse 4. How did they come to Nehemiah? Look at verse 4. They sent a message to him four times in this manner, and he answered them in the same way. Four times. Persistent. You know, most of us believe that if we tell somebody no once, that's enough. It's not enough. I mean, listen, come on. If you've had children for any any amount of time at all, you know that no once doesn't do it. I don't care what you threaten. I don't care how often you discipline. If they want something, they're going to take the chance. I mean, they might even take the chance like this in the running block starting. Are you sure? And ask the second time so they can get away from you so you can't discipline them. But they're going to be persistent. The devil's the same way. He's persistent. They sent the same message to him four times and Nehemiah responded the same way four times. Church, you need to understand that there will never be a time when someone is not upset with something in the church. Can I say that again? There's never going to be a time when someone is not upset with something or someone in the church. If the church is being true to the Word of God, if the church is calling sin, sin, and exalting Savior, and making God big and man little, someone is always going to be upset. And the people that get upset have a tendency to be persistent in their upsetness until they see they're not going to win the battle. That's what Sanballat and Tobiah did four times. Come on, meet with us. Meet with us down at Ano. Come on, we'll go to Christopher's Cafe. We're going to talk it over. I can't do it. I don't have time. Oh, come on now. Come on now. And you know what you're going to see? As you read the letter, as you read the sixth chapter, what you see is that Nehemiah was right on track. Because when it didn't work one way, they just changed. They just adjust a little bit and attack from a different direction. Persistence pays off sometimes, though, doesn't it? We have a little saying. What do we say? A little colloquialism? The squeaky wheel gets the oil, right? Isn't it unbelievable how a small group can dictate to the whole group what we are to believe and do? Isn't that the way that the homosexual movement has worked in America? I mean, percentage-wise, there are very few homosexuals in America. Percentage-wise, there's very few. But because they've been a loud, unified voice, they have gotten laws passed that are enforced upon the masses. Satan knows that persistence pays off. Think about the story of Samson and Delilah. When I read, I'm reading the book of Judges right now in the morning with my kids. When I read the story of Samson and Delilah, I've got to tell you that I'm amazed at Samson's stupidity. Are you not amazed at his stupidity? I mean, I mean, he says, oh, honey, it's this way. It's these green ropes. If you tie me up with these green ropes, then that's it. And the next thing you know, these guys like ninjas are busting out of the closet and tying him up. He laughs and breaks loose. And then she says, oh, baby, won't you tell me? I mean, at some point, Samson should have said, liar, right? But he didn't. He was smitten by her physical beauty. And look what it cost him. The devil is persistent. How did Nehemiah respond to his enemy? Look at verse 1, the end of verse 1. He says at the end of verse 1, he says, uh, at that time, I, he, oh, he says he hadn't set up the doors of the gates. I want you to notice that. He hadn't set up the doors of the gates. So what does he do? He says at the end of verse 3, Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Now, what's important about that is that although the walls were built, the walls were useless without, useless without the gates. It just meant that instead of coming through the breaches in the walls, they would just come massively. And we've seen through chapter 5 the number of gates that they had. There was gate after gate after gate around the whole city. So Nehemiah stays focused on task and he doesn't allow his enemy to put him off task. You know that Peter gives us some very similar advice. He says in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, Be sober-spirited. Be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, 
Notice that it doesn't say rebuke him. It says resist him. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that some experiences of suffering are being accomplished by you, brethren, who are in the world. You know what? The enemy is persistent. The enemy will try its best to entrap you. What do you do? Remain focused on the work that God has given you to do. I want you to see a second attack in verses nine through time, no, verses five through nine. Nehemiah would not be entrapped at the, at Ono. His enemy, so his enemies turned to innuendo. They wanted to entrap him. That didn't work. So what they do now is they begin to use innuendo of treason, at which Nehemiah responds with truth and prayer. Now I want you to notice this: when the attack was mano y mano, when the attack and the end, the entrapment was between Sanballat and Tobiah, he kept it between the two of them. He ignored it. But when it becomes a public offense, when it becomes known to the public, I want you to notice what his response is. Look at verses 5 through 9. Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. An open letter in his hand meant this. It was read aloud. Okay? Now notice what the letter says. And it was written. Now look at the quotation. It's reported among the nations, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you're rebuilding the wall and you are to be their king according to these reports. What's he accusing him of? Treason. Do you know what would happen if word got back to King Artaxerxes that his cupbearer was rebuilding the wall for the purpose of doing an assault and setting up their own kingdom and the cupbearer was going to be the king? This would be, this would be equal to a declaration of war. A little bitty town, Jerusalem, against the Persian Empire and King Artaxerxes. What is the enemy trying to do? They're trying to intimidate. That's what they're trying to do. That's what happens when the enemy can't get his way with you. The next thing he tries to do is intimidate you. The proper response that Nehemiah gives is a balance between patience and wisdom. You have to know when to let things go and you have to know when to address them. Can I say that to you? It's not always wise to let them go. It's not always wise to address them. When I first went into the ministry, when I was pastor in my first church, every time that I heard that there was some conflict in the church somewhere, I'd get my little blue Nissan pickup truck and I'd drive to somebody's house and I'd sit, knock on the door and I'd come in and sit down. And I'll tell you what, I needed to start wearing a poncho or a raincoat for all the verbal puking that I got. Because you know what? A lot of it was just complaining. And what I found was, I found that some things need to just burn themselves out. But there is that time in which the leadership needs to address an issue. Now, how do you know when to address it and when to let it burn it out? Well, how do you do it with your kids? Isn't there sometimes when your kids express their dislike for something or their disagreement for something and you let them have that dislike and disagreement? You give them some room to be a human being and disagree, right? You give them that room to not be, to not be happy with what you're doing. But there is a line in which they cross and they know it and you know when they cross it that all of a sudden the response changes, right? It's the same within the church. You have to have wisdom. Notice what Nehemiah does. After he receives this letter from them, he says in verse 8, I sent a message to him saying, Such things as you were saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. What's he calling? A liar. You're a liar. That isn't true. What you're saying is not true. Then look at verse 9. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking that they will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. Now notice what he does. What is, what is the end of verse 9? It's prayer. 
But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. He has a proper balance between addressing the false nature of the letter, calling it out for what it is, and praying. He doesn't just pray. We should pray. Uh, John Bunyan said that we can do nothing until we pray. And we can do all things after we pray, but certainly nothing until we pray. We should pray. Nehemiah prays, God, strengthen my hands for this work. Listen, do you think that they were afraid? Of course they were afraid. Sandalot and Tobiah were political leaders. They had some clout. If the word gets back to King Artaxerxes that Nehemiah is doing this plot to set himself up at king, it is certain death. But you know what? Sanballat and Tobiah were messing with fire too. Because what happens if the word gets back to King Artaxerxes? That they've accused Nehemiah of this, but he hasn't done it. It's certain death for them too. Nehemiah has a proper balance. Part of it is to address the, the error. You know how many rumors I've heard about me since I've been in the ministry? I've heard everything. I went to visit church in Tennessee. I mean, I went to visit a family that had visited our church in Tennessee once. And they, they had this beautiful young family. They had twin little girls and they had a beautiful little boy. And they lived right behind our church. And I went to see them and I said, uh, Boy, I was really glad to have you in church yesterday. And are you looking for a church? And they said, Well, we just wanted to come and hear for ourselves. We've just been hearing all kinds of things. And I said, Well, what have you heard? Well, we heard that you didn't believe all the Bible. And I said, Well, why did you hear that? Well, something to do with the doctrine of election. And you just didn't believe all the Bible. And I said, Did it sound yesterday like I didn't believe all the Bible? And they said, No. They said it didn't sound like that at all. And so they began to come. And they became Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. And what they found was is they had heard a bunch of stuff that wasn't true. Has that ever happened to you? Has that ever happened to you that somebody has said things about you that were not true? What do you do? Sometimes you let it go and sometimes you address it. Listen, sometimes all you can do is laugh. Because some things just deserve to be laughed at, right? But sometimes you have to say, no, that's not true, and here is the truth. When do you do it? You have to use wisdom. That's the whole role with leadership. You've got to know when to let people vent and when to say, hold on, time out, that's enough, let's address it. Nehemiah does a perfect balance of that. But not only does he address the error, he also commits it to prayer. I want you to notice the third, the third aspect of his conflict. Not only is there entrapment and innuendo, there's intimidation. Verses 10 through 14. There's intimidation. Because they can't entrap them, they try to use, they try to use innuendo to force them by fear to follow their pattern. That doesn't work. So they just, they just go straight to straight out intimidation. Verses 10 through 14. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, son of Methabel, who was confined at home, whether he was sick or taking a vow or what, we don't know. He said, let's meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. And they're coming to kill you at night. Intimidation. Nehemiah goes to see this guy, and this guy says, Nehemiah, I've gotten word through the grapevine. Here, here's what he says. Some people in the church have told me, you ever heard that one? They're coming to kill you. And they're coming to kill you tonight. The only way of escape, Nehemiah, is for us to go into the temple. Let's go into the Holy of Holies. Let's close the doors. Problem. Nehemiah wasn't a Levite. Who's allowed in the temple? Only the Levites. What happens if a non-Levite goes into the temple? What's the penalty? Death. 
Now, where could you go if someone was pursuing your life? You could go to the horns of the altar, and that's it, in the outer court. You could go to it, and that's alone. This guy says to Nehemiah, Come on, Nehemiah! They're going to kill you! Let's get out of here! You know what Nehemiah says? Nehemiah says, It's better to die at their hand than to die at the hand of God disobeying His Word. You know what? Is there anything worth dying for, for you? Is there anything worth sacrificing for, for you? I mean, where, where do you draw the line in where you'll compromise? We should all be compromisers to a degree. Do you understand that, right? Paul says, I become all things to all men to reach some for the gospel of Christ. That doesn't mean that he compromises biblical doctrine. It doesn't mean that he does away with truth. It doesn't mean that he's like this chameleon, which is inconsistency. It means this. It means that to the working class, he works. To the high class, he, he reasons with them. It means that <coughs> he's not afraid to get his hands dirty. <coughs> It means that he's willing to meet people where they are and speak to them on their level. But he never compromises truth. Read the book of Galatians. He even says, Who's betwixt you, you foolish Galatians? Are you going to leave that which you heard from me for some other false doctrine? Though I or an angel from heaven should preach to you something contrary, let him be accursed. You know what Nehemiah says? Nehemiah says, I'm not going to that temple. In fact, notice what he says in verse 11. Should a man like me flee and come one such as I and go into the temple and save his life, I will not go in. In Numbers chapter 18, verse 7, God specifically says, nobody's allowed in that temple but the Levites. Be careful about being intimidated by your enemies. You know, I know a lot of pastors that, are, that can't preach their convictions because they're concerned that they'll lose their jobs. And they do. Every Sunday, somewhere in America, some pastor's force terminated because somebody doesn't like him. I had a guy that I discipled for a couple of years that was pastoring down in Kentucky. He called me two weeks before Christmas. And he said to me, Brother Charlie, he said, I don't know what to do. They've called for a special business meeting tonight and called to fire me. And they called for the vote and they got it. And I've been dismissed. And I said, but they dismiss you. He said, this is exactly what they said. We think that you're a good preacher. We believe that you believe the Bible. You're an expositor. But we just don't like you. We don't like your wife. And we don't like your kids. Boy, God's hand's going to be on that church, isn't it? So guys, I know guys that have been fired because, because of things that were trumped up against them. And no matter what they put forth as truth, people would not listen. Because the wor a lie can race around the world before the truth can lace up its tennis shoes in most cases, right? Here's Nehemiah. You know what Nehemiah says? Nehemiah says this, You will not intimidate me of going against the clear teaching of God's Word. Let me tell you something. If things would go terrible in America and you would have to be forced to make some kind of a declaration that denied that there's only one way to heaven at maybe the expense of imprisonment or even, God forbid, death, are you so certain in your heart that you would not make that kind of a concession? You should be. There have been many that have gone before us and even those today that are in other parts of the world who put their very lives at risk because of their faith in Christ. And Jesus said, I believe one time, it's better to fear Him who can kill the body and throw the soul into hell than just the one who can, fear, who can kill the body alone. Nehemiah would not compromise. Nehemiah, Nehemiah had steadfast obedience. He said in verse 12, I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. What would give him the insight of that? Because the person was trying to tempt him to do that which was contrary to Scripture. 
He was hired for this reason that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. They're trying to get him to go into the temple so they can say, see, Nehemiah doesn't care about the law. Nehemiah doesn't really care about the truth. Nehemiah is only concerned about covering his own skin. Nehemiah remained steadfastly obedient. So they tried to get Nehemiah through intimidation. They tried to get Nehemiah through innuendo. And they tried to get Nehemiah through entrapment. So this is what you see. We come to the final few verses, 15 through 19, and you see this. When they can't get him through entrapment or innuendo or intimidation, they settle for infiltration. Notice that he finishes the walls. Verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul in 52 days from start to completion. That's October 27th, 445 B.C. In 52 days, the wall is completed. Now let's walk on through the text a little bit. When all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. Why is that? Because you who labor and do not give up will reap a reward. Because Nehemiah didn't give in. So the enemies lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah. And Tobiah's letters came to them. What happened was this. Tobiah could not get into the city, so he re- sent letters in and out. In and out. You ever known that? You ever seen that happen in a church? Somebody can no longer have influence themselves in the body of Christ. So what do they do? They start on a letter writing campaign. It's really easy to do today because we all have email. You ever gotten one of those emails? Have you ever gotten into a dialogue with somebody and whenever their email address popped up in your, in your inbox, your stomach just sank oh, and you put your mouse on there and you want to go delete, but you don't. You open it up and you read. You ever have that happen? That's what Nehemiah is facing. It wasn't email. It was handwritten mail. It's just letters of intimidation back and forth and back and forth. But you know what? Who was the victor in this? Nehemiah and God's people. Why? Because the walls and the gates were completed. I want to take you back right to the very beginning, and I want to tell you what I told you in the first place, and that is this. You had better settle it in your heart that you will never do anything of significance for the kingdom of God without conflict. If you plan on doing anything of significance, you better bet bet you're going to have conflict. Let a father pass his business on to his son. And the son, maybe he's been to university and the father hadn't. The father did a good job with the company, but he only took it to this level right here. And the son who's been to university and understands the business world and understands things that the father maybe didn't understand, he comes in and he begins to make changes. I'm not talking about bad changes. I mean good changes. But here's what happens. Everybody in the company says, your daddy didn't do it like that, right? Or you come into the church and you begin to hear new truth and somebody says, my daddy didn't believe that. Or I've never heard that before. Rather than, rather than measuring the claims against the Word of God, we have a tendency to measure them against what somebody else has said, what everybody else has said, instead of the Word of God. Let me tell you, here's the point. You will not accomplish anything of significance without some opposition. So be ready for opposition. Let me give you three final points of application and I'll be done. Number one, don't expect perfection on this side of heaven. Too many people expect perfection. Too many people get so discouraged when there's conflict in the church. Conflict is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I heard, one, I heard a man say this once. He said, I know a lot more about a man 
by his enemies than I do by his friends. I can tell a man, I can tell a lot about a man by what he believes, by who, who disagrees with him, as I can, uh, better than I can by who does agree with him. Don't expect perfection on this side of heaven. There's not going to be perfection on this side of heaven. There's not going to be the perfect marriage. I can't tell you the number of married couples that have come in after a year or a couple of months of marriage and said, I expected it to be different. You expected it to be perfect. Cinderella is a fairy tale. There is no perfect marriage. Marriage is made up of struggle and work and forgiveness. It's made up of loving one another in, in, in spite of our flaws. It's made up of forgiveness. It's made up of commitment. Love will not keep a marriage together. Commitment will keep a marriage together. Love wanes and it gets in stronger and weaker and stronger and weaker throughout the years, but commitment will keep you together. It's the same in the body of Christ. There is no perfection on this side of heaven. We will all have victories and defeats, but never perfection until we get to heaven. Let me tell you something else that I learned from Nehemiah chapter 6. The power to be victorious is not solely in your hand. The power to be victorious is not solely in your hand. What did the enemy say in the verse 16? For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of their God, our God. Peter, or the psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborer, the, the labor in vain, is in vain who build it. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guides the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. You know what? We're not going to do anything in our own strength. We're not going to do anything in our own mindset, in our own way. The question we should be consistently asking is, is this what God's Word tells us to do? Is this what God's Word teaches us? Is this what we understand about God? Finally, I'll give you this final, this final application. Compromise seldom nets success. Compromise seldom nets success. Decide where your lot falls and live with the consequences. You can't decide what you're going to do based upon what the consequence might be. You must decide what you're going to do based upon what you believe the truth is. I'm not telling you to be uncompromising in your marriage. Don't, make, don't misunderstand that. I'm not telling you to be uncompromising in your friendships and in your neighborhood. I'm just telling you this. Be careful about compromise. Sometimes because we're so afraid of conflict, we rush to compromise without thinking through the consequences of the compromise. Compromise seldom nets any kind of genuine success and peace. I pray that you take these principles... You'll think through them this afternoon and may the Holy Spirit apply them to your life however He wishes to do so, whether it be in your marriage or your work or even in this church. Let's pray together and let's conclude with an appropriate hymn, My Faith is Found a Resting Place.